Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Spacetime, an enormous X-shaped structure discovered in the central bulge of the Milky Way, new questions about how gullies are formed on Mars, and a new generation top-secret spy satellite launched for the National Reconnaissance Office. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. New evidence suggests there's an enormous X-shaped structure made up of stars in the central bulge of the Milky Way galaxy. The discovery reported in the Astrophysical Journal helps scientists better understand both how the Milky Way was formed and how the galaxy has evolved ever since. The findings are based on a new analysis of images from NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer Space Telescope, launched in 2009. The study's lead author, Melissa Ness, from Germany's Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg, says the telescope's images clearly show what appears to be an X-shaped star formation in the central bulge of the galaxy. The Milky Way is a large barred spiral galaxy, a disc-shaped collection of billions of stars, gas and dust, 100,000 light-years in diameter, with a bar-shaped feature that runs through its centre and a central bulge of stars. The central bulge resembles a rectangular box or even a peanut shape when viewed as we view it from within the plane of the galaxy, and the X-shaped structure is an integral component of this bulge. The new discovery supports the hypothesis that the galactic bulge was actually created as an outgrowth of the galaxy's central bar, which itself formed out of the evolving galactic disk. The findings are also evidence that our galaxy hasn't experienced any sort of major mergers with other galaxies since the bulge formed. That's because such mergers would have disrupted its shape. The discovery supports both earlier computer models and observations of both the Milky Way and other similar galaxies, which have all suggested that an X-shaped structure existed. The problem is, until now, no one had observed it directly. And some astronomers had argued that previous research indirectly supporting the existence of the X could be explained in other ways. Co-author on the new study, Dustin Lang from the University of Toronto, says there's been lots of controversy about whether the X-shaped structure existed. He says the new study provides a good view of the galactic core of the Milky Way and provides good solid evidence for the existence of the X-shaped structure. The galactic bulge is a key signature of the formation of the Milky Way galaxy, and so understanding the shape of the bulge helps astronomers better understand how the galaxy formed. A new study claims liquid water flowing across the surface of Mars isn't responsible for the recent formation of gullies on the red planet. The new findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, is based on fresh data from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft, which shows no mineralogical evidence for abundant liquid water or its byproducts associated with these gullies. 
The discovery means mechanisms other than the flow of water, things like the freezing and thawing of carbon dioxide frost, may well be the major drivers of recent gully evolution. The new evidence allows scientists to narrow their theories on exactly how recently formed Martian gullies came to be, in the process revealing new details about more recent geological processes on the Red Planet. When it comes to Mars, scientists use the term gully to describe geological features which have three primary characteristics in their shape, an alcove at the top, a channel in the middle, and an apron of deposited material at the bottom. These gullies are distinct from other types of features on Martian slopes, streaks known as recurring slope lineae, or RSLs. RSLs are distinguished by seasonal darkening and fading, rather than characteristics such as the shape of the ground. Liquid water in the form of hydrated salts has been identified at recurring slope linear sites, indicating they at least were caused by salty water flowing downhill. To reach their conclusions about the gullies, scientists from Johns Hopkins University in Maryland examined high-resolution compositional data from over 100 gully sites across Mars. These data, collected by the orbiter's compact reconnaissance imaging spectrometer, were then correlated with images from the same spacecraft's high-resolution imaging science experiment, HiRISE, and its context camera. Gullies are a widespread and common feature across the Martian surface, mostly occurring between 30 and 50 degrees latitude in both the northern and southern hemispheres, and interestingly enough, generally on slopes that face towards the poles. On Earth, similar gullies are formed by flowing liquid water. However, under current conditions, liquid water is fairly transient on the surface of Mars and may only occur as small amounts of brine, even on recurring slope linear streaks. The lack of sufficient water to calf gullies has resulted in a variety of theories for their creation, including different mechanisms involving the evaporation of water and carbon dioxide frost. The high-rise team and others had shown that there was seasonal activity in these gullies, primarily in the southern hemisphere, over the past couple of years, and carbon dioxide frost is the main mechanism they suspected of causing it. Because they were using optical cameras, images aboard the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter couldn't determine the composition of material in the gullies. So to finally shed some light on the main mechanism involved in gully formation, scientists used the spacecraft's imaging spectrometer. The research team took advantage of a new CRISM data product called Map Projected Targeted Reduced Data Records. This allowed them to more easily perform their analysis and then correlate the findings with high-rise imagery. On both Earth and Mars, we know that the presence of phyllosilicates, in other words clays or other hydrated minerals, indicates formation in liquid water. However, there was no evidence for clays or other hydrated minerals in most of the gullies studied on Mars. In fact, they were only detected in erosional debris from ancient rocks exposed and transported downhill rather than being altered by more recently flowing water. These gullies are carving into terrains and exposing clays that likely formed billions of years ago, a time when liquid water was far more stable on the Martian surface. Based on the new findings, scientists have now created a new computer simulation, which shows how sublimation of seasonal carbon dioxide frost could create gullies similar to those observed on Mars, and how their shape can mimic the type of gullies that liquid water would create. A huge fireball seen burning up in the night skies over Las Vegas last week was most likely Chinese space junk rather than a meteor. Large areas of California, Nevada and Utah were treated to the spectacular light show on Wednesday when a giant fireball streaked across the sky. The United States National Weather Service ruled out any meteorologically related events. 
Skywatchers guessed it could be a meteor from the Delta Aquarids meteor shower, which was at its peak at the time. However, astronomer Phil Plate tweeted that what he saw looked more like space debris, possibly a rocket booster re-entering over the western US. That view was soon supported by fellow astronomer Jonathan McDowell, who tweeted that the fireball was likely the second stage of China's new Longmart 7 rocket, which, as we reported on Spacetime last month, undertook its maiden flight back on June 25th. The time of the spacecraft's re-entry matched orbital tracking data, which predicted re-entry at 4.40 Greenwich Mean Time. The debris was travelling at around 29,000 kilometres per hour as it entered the atmosphere, burning up about 80 kilometres above the ground. Beijing planned to use the Long March 7 rocket to carry Taikonauts to their new space station, which is planned for launch later this year. Believe it or not, more than 25 individual pieces of space junk a ton or more in mass have re-entered Earth's atmosphere so far this year, the largest being a Russian Zenit booster stage which came down over Vietnam on New Year's Day. Scientists say there could be as many as one fireball every night somewhere on Earth, but they're usually not seen as most tend to go down over the oceans. Five years after departing Earth and a month after slipping into orbit around Jupiter, NASA's Juno spacecraft has reached the turning point on its highly elliptical orbit around the solar system's largest planet. On July 31st, Juno reached Apo-Jove, at a distance of some 8.1 million kilometres out from Jupiter, the farthest point in its orbit around the gas giant for the first time. After this point, Jupiter's gravitational grip on Juno caused the probe to begin falling back towards the planet for another pass, this time with its scientific eyes wide open. The spacecraft is currently executing the first of two long orbits prior to beginning its science mission. Each of these capture orbits is nearly two months long, quite a wait for the mission's eager team of scientists, but it's nothing compared to the long wait the team had to endure on the trek to Jupiter. You see, Juno was launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Base way back on August 5, 2011. The spacecraft then took a long looping path around the inner solar system in order to set up an Earth flyby in which our planet's gravity flung the spinning probe out towards Jupiter. Juno's principal investigator, Scott Bolton from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says for the past five years he's been focused on just getting to Jupiter. And now that Juno's finally in orbit, he can concentrate on beginning the dozens of flybys of the gas giant in order to get the science he's been after. Juno arrived on Jupiter on July 4th, firing its main rocket engine as planned for 35 minutes. The flawless manoeuvre allowed Jupiter's gravity to capture the solar-powered spacecraft into the first of two 53.4 Earth day-long orbits, referred to as capture orbits. Following the capture orbits, Juno will fire its engine once more to shorten its orbital period to 14 days and begin its science mission. But before that happens, on August the 27th, Juno must finish its first lap around Jupiter, with a finish line that represents the mission's closest pass over the gas giant. During the encounter, Juno will skim past Jupiter, a mere 4,200 kilometres above the cloud tops. Juno's science instruments were turned off during orbit insertion in order to simplify spacecraft operations during the critical manoeuvre. In contrast to that, all science instruments will be collecting data during the August 27 pass, which will serve as a trial run before the mission gets underway, collecting all the precious data it came for. Juno will probe Jupiter's deep structure, atmospheric circulation and the highly energetic physics of its magnetic environment. What Juno finds there will reveal important clues about Jupiter's formation and evolution, providing new insights into how our solar system was built. 
Now, listen to this. Jack White, one half of the famous brother and sister band The White Stripes, is best known for great musical tracks like Fell in Love with a Girl, Hotel Yorba and Seven Nation Army. However, White's now reached new heights, quite literally in this case. Third Man Records, the label he founded, has just achieved a remarkable first, playing a vinyl record on a turntable at the very edge of space. For those born in the 1980s or later, vinyl records are flat plastic discs, which look sort of like a licorice pizza. They feature a continuous circular groove cut into them on which audio, usually music, is recorded. Vinyl records were the precursors to CDs, DVDs and Blu-rays. The record which set the record for going to the edge of space this week was a musical mashup of the late great astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who educated a generation about the wonders of the cosmos. It was set to Carl Sagan's song, A Glorious Dawn, composed by John Boswell. I'm not very good at uh, singing songs, but uh, here's, here's a try. With the album on the turntable and the record player set on repeat in a specially built gondola called the Icarus Craft, the music was, well, literally carried aloft from Marsing, Idaho on a high-altitude balloon to a height of 28,000 metres, that's 91,864 feet, higher than the cruising altitude of a U-2 spy plane. sending uh, the spacecraft Icarus up to play the uh, world's first vinyl record played in space. Third Man Record team is out here in Idaho and right now we're doing just some last pre-flight thermal protection to some of the motors on board and we're going to get ready and send this thing aloft. Overall, from its very conception, the project took some four years to put together. Okay, now we're going to power up the uh, spacecraft, Icarus. We're going to go ahead and start program, flight program. Okay, yep, she's running. Uh, the payload is ready to fly. Okay, we are good to go on mine also. Here we go in three, two, one. Uh, 20, it's been a half hour and we just passed through 29,000 feet. And just an hour and 21 minutes after launch, the helium-filled balloon reached its maximum altitude and, as expected, burst, sending the Icarus craft back to the Earth. Right now it's coming down a little faster than 
we expected it to. So we're just trying to wait in a holding pattern here to see uh, where indeed it's going to land and, and then we'll get on the road here real quick. We found it. Let's go, the car, let's go get it. Just we right down the road. Icarus landed safely in the field with the turntable still playing. It's upside down, but the turntable's still reading. I don't see any physical damage. Dave and I are going to turn it over and shut it down. It's still running. Let's see if it plays again. It's in turbulence mode. Yeah, it just set the needle down again. So uh, it's playing back again. I'm going to power down. There we go. Both the record and the turntable had to be specially modified for the journey in order to withstand the extreme conditions of near-Earth space. Gravity would still play its role in keeping the needle on the record. However, because the Earth's atmosphere acts as an insulating blanket to keep temperatures fairly even, the ultra-thin atmosphere in the near vacuum of space at these altitudes would have caused huge temperature variations to the equipment. Without an atmospheric blanket, things like direct sunlight get extremely hot, while areas in shade get freezingly cold and with vinyl melting at around 71 degrees Celsius, the constant temperature variations would quickly distort the record, rendering it unplayable. To withstand these extremes, mission manager Kevin Carrico designed the Icarus turntable to keep the vinyl record cool. It's not uh, rocket science, it's balloon science. And the record itself was plated in gold in order to keep the grooves from losing their shape and becoming unplayable. Incidentally, in case you were wondering, the first song played in space was, believe it or not, Jingle Bells, performed by the crew of Gemini 6 on December the 16th, 1965. The story goes, astronauts Wally Shearer and Thomas Stafford had just reported seeing an unidentified flying object on a polar orbit entering Earth's atmosphere. As Houston mission managers listened in shock to the report, the Gemini 6 crew announced that the unidentified craft's pilot was wearing a bright red suit and was trying to signal them. Moments later, Shearer and Stafford began singing jingle bells with the help of a smuggled harmonica they had brought on board with them. And while we're on the topic, Frank Sinatra's 1964 recording of Fly Me to the Moon was the first song to be played on the moon. That was on the Apollo 10 mission during lunar orbit in 1969. And as for the record for the most distant phonograph recording, that's a gold record attached to the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which left the solar system in 2013 and is now flying through interstellar space some 20 billion 223 million kilometres from Earth. And what was recorded on the disc? Well, greetings from Earth in different languages and sounds of the planet. What else? NASA has taken another step in its efforts to return human spaceflight to American soil, ordering a second post-certification mission for SpaceX's Dragon V2 capsule and its Falcon 9 launch vehicle. 
the order for a second crew rotation mission for SpaceX, paired with the two already ordered for Boeing CST-100 Starliner, will help ensure reliable crew rotation flights from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida to the International Space Station, as well as longer-duration deep space missions using Orion capsules on flights to the Moon, Mars and beyond. Boeing received its two orders in May and December last year, while SpaceX received its first order last November. Both companies have started planning for, building and testing the necessary hardware and assets in order to carry out their first test flights and ultimately missions for NASA. NASA's yet to decide which company will fly the first post-certification mission to the International Space Station. Each provider's contract includes a minimum of two and a potential maximum of six missions. SpaceX met the criteria for this latest award after it successfully completed interim developmental milestones and internal design reviews for its Dragon V2 manned spacecraft as well as its human-rated Falcon 9 rocket and associated ground systems. SpaceX is currently building four Dragon V2 manned capsules at its Hawthorne facility in California, two for qualification testing and two for flight tests next year. The company is also in the process of modifying the former Apollo moon rocket and space shuttle launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, from which the company will launch its future crewed missions to the space station. A standard commercial crew mission to the space station will carry between four and six crew members and up to about 220 pounds of pressurized cargo. The capsules are designed to remain docked to the space station for 210 days, where, like their Soyuz counterparts, they'll be kept available as emergency escape pods. The arrival of commercial crew vehicles from Boeing and SpaceX will also allow NASA to add a seventh crew member to space station missions. That will significantly increase the amount of crew time available to conduct scientific research. Orders under NASA's commercial crew transport contracts are made two to three years prior to an actual mission in order to provide each company with plenty of time to manufacture and assemble the launch vehicle and spacecraft. And finally for now, what's believed to be a new version of a top-secret spy satellite has been launched amid a curtain of secrecy for the National Reconnaissance Office. NROL-61 blasted into orbit aboard an Atlas V rocket from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. Status check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Go NROL-61. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4... Three, two, we have RD-180 ignition and we have liftoff of the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket carrying the NRO L-61 mission for the National Reconnaissance Office. This PO is going to close with control. RD-180 chamber pressures are good at this point. Pitch program is complete. Boosters throttle down right on schedule. Roll program is complete at this point. Mach 1. Boosters throttle up right on schedule. Engine response is good. This chamber pressures have applied to passing through maximum dynamic pressure. Signatures look good. Current altitude is 10 miles. Downrange distance is 4.8 miles. Current velocity is 1,985 miles per hour. Coming up on SRB burnout. And we have SRB burnout. Signatures look good. 
Booster has throttled back to full thrust. RD-180 continues to perform well. And at this point, the booster is now 50% of its liftoff weight. Coming up on SRB jettison, and we have indication of jettison of two solids. Signatures look good. Closed loop steering has been enabled. Small body rates at this point in time. And we have indication of the RCS pyro valve firing. That system is now pressurizing the flight level. Signatures look good. Current altitude is 42 miles. Downrange distance 86 miles. Current velocity 6,137 miles per hour. RD-180 continues to perform well. Pump speeds look good. Booster is now 25% of its liftoff weight. Booster engine continues to perform well. Currently flying at 5 Gs. It's throttling to maintain that. Loose phase cooldown is underway. And we have gone to throttle for to 4.6 Gs in preparation for BECO. Boost phase cooldown is complete. And we have BECO. Engine shutdown looks good. And we have indication of stage separation. We have locks and fuel pre-start underway. GN2 purge firing of the RCS. And we have ignition and full thrust on the RL tap. And we have indication of payload fern jettison. Looks like a clean separation. This is Atlas Mission Control at T plus 4 minutes, 53 seconds. An Atlas V rocket carrying NRO L61 for the National Reconnaissance Office lifted off at 8.37 a.m. Eastern Time. And all systems continue to operate as expected. At our customers' request, we will now be concluding our live broadcast coverage. The clandestine mission is believed to have placed a new generation National Reconnaissance Office Quasar Data a relay satellite into an inclined geostationary orbit 35,888 kilometers above the Earth. The use of an Atlas V in its 4 to 1 configuration with an enlarged 14 meter long 4 meter diameter payload fairing nose cone indicates the new fourth generation Quasar satellite is both heavier and physically larger than earlier versions. Either that or it's small enough that they can fit two in there. The Atlas V 421 variant uses a common core booster main stage with a kerosene-fed RD-180 main engine and two Aerojet AJ-60A strap-on solid rocket boosters for additional launch thrust. The launch vehicle also uses a cryogenic center upper stage powered by a liquid hydrogen RL-10C1 engine. In fact, the entire launch vehicle stacks very similar in configuration to that which will launch Boeing CST-100 Starliner manned capsules to the International Space Station from next year. The only real difference being the use of a dual rather than single-engine centre-upper stage. Quasar satellites are part of the National Reconnaissance Office's Satellite Data System, or SDS, designed to relay data from imagery intelligence satellites in low Earth orbit in real time, rather than waiting for the imagery satellite to pass over ground stations in friendly countries. The new Quasar design is thought to have been developed to support the next generation of Keyhole, or KH-11, heavy electro-optical imagery intelligence satellites, the first two of which are slated for launch in September 2018 and July 2020. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, this month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts. 